ghoul friends, it's me, Adrian, or Aiden. Either way, I am still your host, and you are still listening to Susto, the podcast of ooky, spooky, scary stories. Oh my goodness, what an interesting couple of weeks it has been. I'm going to start off by saying I am so happy to be here, to be in your ears, in your car, in your home, wherever you are listening, however you are listening. I'm super happy to be back on track. It feels like as much Uh, on track as I can feel. For those of you that don't know, if you don't live in Texas, if you didn't see the news, although most of you listening will know because most of my listeners are in Texas, shout out Texas, we were hit with a really bad winter storm a couple of weeks ago, like two weeks ago, and it was scary and it was uh, difficult. And even though the weather is more bearable now, there are still people that are feeling the effects of the storm. I think there were like record set, record setting low temperatures from what I heard. Either way, whatever the temperature actually was, like it did a lot of damage because uh, Texas does not have the infrastructure for something like that. And the resources are not made available to the people who needed them. And uh, if you have little ears listening, I use colorful language on this show anyway. So <laughs> I don't know if it'll be that much uh, different or shocking, but fuck ERCOT. Fuck Ted Cruz, fuck John Cornyn, fuck all of these politicians and people in power who decided that instead of setting the people up with what they needed, with what we needed to survive, some of us, five days, myself included, without power in our homes, they decided they wanted to make an extra buck for themselves. You know what's really scary? You know what actually gives me susto is people like that. I'm not scared of ghosts, I'm not scared of demons, I'm not scared of witchcraft, owls, what have you. I'm actually, you know what, I'm not even scared of those people either. I'm mad. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually re-recording this intro because I rambled for a, for a second and I was like, let me actually get my thoughts together and, and think about how I actually feel. And I realized that I'm mad. I was mad when it was happening and I'm still mad because as much as being without power for that long threw me off, I had no power in my home for... I can tell you exactly four, four and a half days on the fifth day is when we finally got power back and it stayed on, thankfully. And it was it was pretty scary because I was just hoping that the temperature would not drop super low in our apartment. We probably shouldn't have but We slept with candles on so that we could keep the apartment warm. And yes, we were fortunate enough that if it got to that point, we could have gone somewhere. We have people in our pod that we could have stayed with, but it didn't get to that point. But still, that doesn't take away from the fact that it was really frustrating and it was a little scary. You know, and we also lost some groceries. And the thing is that while I'm sharing how I feel and some of the things that I went through, I I still have in the back of my head that there are people that ex- had a much worse experience. And I, and I just put this into words. I, I don't know if I need someone who is listening to hear this because maybe you feel the same way or if I'm just telling myself. But yes, while it is true that there are a lot of people who suffered severely, who may have had a, a different experience a quote-unquote worse experience than you, it doesn't take away from the experience that you had. And if you went through a hard time, that is, that's fine, that's valid. You do not have to take away from what you went through to recognize that other people went through something and vice versa. And so I'm also going to say there are people that are still feeling the effects of all of that. So if you are able to, I would suggest All it takes is a quick Google search. You can look up mutual aid funds in Texas, look up Google mutual aid winter storm 2021. And I guarantee you, you will find multiple pages. I don't know if you all saw on the Susto social medias, that's at Susto podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I shared some uh, links on my stories 
about different places, different organizations that you could donate to, whether it was physical goods or money. If you are able to, I would I would I would encourage you still to donate to those places because like I said, some people are still recuperating and unfortunately there are always going to be people in need because again, the resources are not set up for us for all of us, I should say. Yeah, I mean, even like the days leading up, we donated some stuff that we could. During and after, I donated money as soon as I saw that the mutual aids and the the fundraisers, I guess, if you will, were being put together because I knew in the back of my head, not even the back of my head, just in the front of my head, I knew that other people were going through it as well. And I had it, I was able to donate. And, And if I wasn't, that's fine. And if you weren't, that's fine. You can also share these posts with people and put them in front of the eyes of someone who is able to donate as well. So I'm super happy to be bringing the show back to you. I took an extra week off of the show because I'm, I was also still trying to catch up on like, okay, what do we need to replace in the fridge? Where do I need to catch up with my class? Thankfully, my instructors are being forgiving and understanding as they should be <laughs> and making sure that none of us fall behind in our classes, at least the classes that I'm in. So yeah, just playing catch up with that and then playing catch up with work and my side projects and then with this. And Susto was the one, one Susto was one of the things where I was like, I need to set this aside for a second and just like, and also just to get myself back like mentally. <laughs> yeah, it, it took a lot out of me and maybe I'm just sensitive, but I don't think that's a bad thing. And so if you are too, if you were also going through it, I'm here with you. I'm here for you. High school musical moment. We're all in this together. And at the end of the day, as always, the community is who has the community's back. You can always find a helping hand, a shoulder, what have you, whatever you need within the community. Patreon people, I'm sorry that there wasn't any episode related benefits, but your susto mail is already out there on the road on its way to you. Just a little late Valentine's Day something that I handmade myself. I'm going to give myself full credit there. Yes, I handmade some cards and that might not be the last time because like I said, I have a cricket and I'm not afraid to use it and I'm really excited. And I honestly, I feel like I perfected the cutting on it. So I'm like fingers crossed that the cuts are going to be perfect from here on out they have been these last few times that i've done like a test run so yeah if you haven't seen that um i have an etsy now (laughs) it's different from like the susto brand i guess you could say it's some more like fun stuff on there i just have a few things on there and i'm making things like as the ideas come to me and as i have the time to do so so if you want to check it out that is it's aiden makes all one word on etsy just search aiden makes and yeah you'll find the stuff in there and then while you're while you're online again follow all the susto social medias like subscribe rate review whatever you can do wherever you're listening to the show um, that would help me a ton i'm hoping to get to like 200 listeners per episode and i'm gonna need your help for that so share the show recommend it to people interact with the stuff on social media leave all the reviews and stuff because that bumps the show up in the algorithm it bumps the accounts up in the algorithm and then that gets it in front of more people so i mean we're, we're close we're inching towards that 200 listener mark per each episode i get a pretty consistent listen. So I want to thank you all for that. And as always, I'm going to give a shout out to my patrons. You can see the social media posts as well. But uh, I'm up to 15 patrons on Patreon. And that makes me so happy. I love doing all of the little benefits and the goodies for you and like sending you gifts and all that. Big shout out for the month of February patrons who were Rachel, Alejandra, Sadie, Luther, April, Liza, Mario, Mark, Joe, Eva, Jono, Diana, Armani, Emily and Victoria. Thank you all so, so much. And thank you for being patient with Susto while I like get things going and send things out to you. There are more goodies on the way. As always, I I feel like I have like 
tons of ideas always coming at me and it's just a matter of like how fast can I produce this thing keep your eyes peeled for those goodies a best ghoul friends holographic sticker an updated version of that is going to be out very soon I'm literally just waiting for supplies to be delivered to me and then I'm going to send those out to you all so very excited for that and if you want to get your own goodies your own susto mail monthly and other benefits you can sign up on patreon.com slash podcast and get all of that good stuff so I've ranted, <laughs> I've thanked you for being here, I've given all the updates, all that good stuff. We're going to jump into today's episode, and as you've already seen the title, I'm going to be telling the story of the Vampire of Pisco, Peru. For more than 80 years after a British woman named Sarah Ellen Roberts was buried in the local cemetery in Pisco, Peru, local residents continued to spread the story that she had been executed in the United Kingdom for being a vampire and a murderer. According to the legend, Sarah Ellen Roberts had been tried and executed in Blackburn, England after being seen biting the neck of a child and sucking the blood. Her husband, John Roberts, reportedly brought her to Pisco because the Church of England had denied her burial on consecrated ground. Since there was nowhere else that was willing to take the body due to her terrible crimes, he settled on an obscure city in Peru. To ensure that she would remain in her grave, Roberts purchased a lead-lined coffin and, after burying his wife, went home and never returned to Peru. In a more elaborate version of the story, Sarah Ellen Roberts was actually one of the three sisters all executed for vampirism at Blackburn and reportedly known in the UK as the Brides of Dracula. The other two sisters had been buried by John Roberts in different countries to ensure they were widely separated. How the legend started is not really clear but it seemed to have a powerful influence on the residents of Bisco, many of whom were convinced that Sarah Ellen Roberts would rise someday and seek a terrible vengeance on the town where she was buried. The panic over her presence in the local cemetery came to a head in 1993, 80 years after Sarah's death, after a vampire expert appeared on Christina Saralewi's US talk show and discussed Sarah Roberts' story, among others, as an example of a real-life vampire case. Rebroadcast in Spanish, the show was seen on Peruvian television, and residents of Pisco were startled to discover that they suddenly had an international reputation as a vampire haven. Not long after the broadcast, visitors to the cemetery were horrified to see a crack in Sarah's tombstone and rumors spread across the town that the vampire was about to rise. Pregnant women fled B-School out of fear that Sarah's ghost would be reincarnated into one of their children, while clothes of garlic and crucifixes were placed on houses throughout the area. Quick-acting vendors started selling anti-vampire kits to hundreds of local residents. Sold for two and a half dollars, the kit contained a string of garlic, a crucifix, a stake and mallet, and a small booklet that described Sarah's story. 
Armed with their anti-vampire tools, hundreds of curiosity seekers converged on Sarah's gravesite on June 9, 1993. It was reportedly quite a spectacle. One group of women, dressed in black, placed flowers on Sarah's grave and sang hymns accompanied by two violins. Radio and television journalists gathered at the site as well, and it became a major media event in Peru. One news helicopter monitored the scene from above, providing live coverage. Journalists interviewed numerous local residents who shared their own fears of being attacked after Sarah rose. Eventually, police had to be called in to deal with the hysterical crowd of about a thousand people gathered at the graveyard that same night. The crowd dispersed after shots were fired into the air, although a small group of local witch doctors remained at the tomb to splash holy water and scatter white rose petals around. Presumably, it worked since the vampire failed to rise and the intrepid vampire experts claimed credit for protecting the town. For months afterward, there were rumors of a mysterious figure roaming the back streets of Pisco, but the anti-vampire hysteria had largely subsided by then. Of course, anti-vampire hysteria is nothing new with fresh outbreaks occurring even in the last century in places as diverse as London, England, and Malawi. Recent movies, books, and television shows about vampires have kept the legend in the public eye and given vampires and vampire hunters a certain credibility. Since Pisco had relatively few other attractions, having their own vampire became a favorite selling point to the town's small tourist industry, and local taxi drivers often told Sarah Ellen Roberts' story to customers. The tale of the Pisco vampire took on a new life after the devastating Peruvian earthquake of August 2007. Pisco was particularly hard hit, given that it was very close to the earthquake's epicenter, and more than 80% of the city was destroyed. Hundreds of residents died, and many historic buildings were badly damaged by the quake. In the cemetery where Sarah is buried, numerous coffins were destroyed, but hers was remarkably untouched. I like this one, <laughs> as I always do. I, I feel like after every star, I'm always like, that was a little bit different, or I really like this one, because they're always different, and I always really like them. But this one was different because it, I feel like this story wasn't, like, inherently, like, scary. Um, of course, there's, like, the spooky undertones of, like, ooh, a vampire, but also... Because I feel like stories about cryptids, I get, I don't know if a vampire counts as a cryptid. I want to say it does, but you get what I'm saying. Like these kinds of stories are typically born out of a community's reaction to something. And so I feel like this was a great example because of the community of Pisco, Peru, and their reaction to this story because Sarah Ellen Roberts and her husband, they're real people and she's actually buried there in that cemetery, which I think is enough for some people to be like, oh, there you go. Gonna dust off my hands and it's the truth. But there's there's more to that story and I wanted to save that for this part. 
because it's less, I feel like what I just told was the spookier part of the story, but then it continues and we we find out a lot more about this person and about this story. And I will say now that I don't think they ever really found out how the story got started. Honestly, I think it would be hilarious, but I'm pretty sure it could have just been one of the people from Peace Goal was like, look at these pale white people. They're vampires. That's it. And so it could have been as simple as that. And then it just caught on like wildfire from there because that's how rumors are. But still, there is some really interesting stuff behind this. So the page that I just read from, it is from, I'm not sure what this website is, but it's the James Randi Educational Foundation. And this was written by Dr. Romero Vitei, published in October of 2011. So this same page, it goes on and the tone changes in the story, I guess. They end up, so they talk about how the earthquake happened. It was a really bad earthquake. And in the cemetery, pretty much everything was destroyed. But Sarah Ellen Roberts, her grave was untouched, which is pretty spooky. But then the tone changes from this piece that this person wrote and they continue and they write ironically the preservation of sarah ellen's robert sarah ellen roberts's grave spawned a new legend about her far from being a vampire local residents decided that she was blessed instead which again i think is it's interesting to see how people react to certain events or to certain like rumors that they hear but Literally, all it took was just that, which honestly, this could have gone a completely different direction. And people could have been like, oh, her grave was untouched because she's protected by by the Dark Lord, by 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 evil. And, and, you know, like it could have gone in that direction. But people were like, oh, no, she was protected. So she must be holy in some way. And so it continues and it says only a true saint's grave would be preserved when so many other graves were destroyed after all. Which also makes me think it says so many other but not every other grave. So I'm like, were there other graves there that were also untouched? And why weren't those people like sanctified in the eyes of the community? Was it because Sarah Ellen Roberts already had a reputation and then they just flipped it? So again, it's just so interesting to see uh, any, people's response to the things that happen around them and then see what those responses turn into, which became a whole legend for this community. It continues, once more in the news, Sarah Ellen Roberts became the focus of Blackburn historians who decided to get to the bottom of her legend once and for all. And so this is where they start to demystify and debunk all of the rumors about this woman. It says, the notion that anyone in the United Kingdom could have been tried and executed for witchcraft, let alone vampirism, in 1913 was enough of a red flag for them to investigate further. The reality proved to be far more mundane. Sarah's grandchildren, many of whom were still living in the UK, were justifiably mystified when they heard about the legends that surrounded their ancestor. Born Sarah Gargit in 1872, she had only one sister, not the two, as the legend says, and she and her husband, John Price Roberts, were both Blackburn weavers who often traveled to Peru, where John's brother became prosperous in the cotton oil trade. It was during one of these trips to Peru that Sarah died on June 9, 1913. The actual cause of death is unknown, but the fact that she died in Peru meant that her husband needed to arrange for her burial locally, using a wooden coffin, not lead-lined. He never returned to Peru after that and later died in 1925. So that part also, I don't understand why he wouldn't have returned. Like maybe, because 1913 to his death, 1925, that's 
what, eight years? That's a long time to not go visit your wife's grave. So maybe he got sick and that's why he couldn't return or like he his business like tanked and he couldn't afford to go back because England to Peru, that's a that's a big trip. And then in England, I'm, I'm in 1913 when she died, like to 1925 from those times, like transportation was not then what it is now. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating at this point, but again, it's interesting. Like if when I get married, if my husband died in another country, I wouldn't bury him there and then never go visit, you know? I don't know, unless maybe he made peace with that. And that was just the reality then where it's like, crap, my loved one died in another country. I'm I'm going to have to make peace with the fact that I cannot take them back home with me, which means I'm not going to be able to visit them as often or at all. I don't know. Pure speculation, but it's very interesting. So it continues. So how did a deceased weaver from Blackburn become Dracula's bride? Exactly how the legend of Sarah Ellen Roberts started will probably remain a mystery. Again, I wish we could know. It says her husband's decision to have her buried locally rather than return the body home probably seemed remarkable enough for the residents of Pisco to speculate on his motives. Again, it's like, why would you leave her here? So maybe they could have taken the body. I feel they could have because they probably had like ships, just put the body on a ship and then take it to England. I don't know. I don't know if embalmings existed then or like how, if they could put the body on ice on a ship, like if she would have made the trip again, I don't know. But that was again, enough for the community in Pisco to be like, uh, why are you leaving her here? It says the presence of Sarah's headstone in the cemetery among all the other headstones with Peruvian names likely helped reinforce her status as an outsider. The identity of whoever first came up with the colorful stories about her is still unknown, but the legend quickly took on a life of its own. So then maybe that answers the question from earlier about was she was she the only person's grave who was not destroyed in the earthquake? And if so, why was she the only one that was seen as holy? And it, it could have just been because her name was different than everybody else's, which doesn't sit right with me. It's like, oh, really? The only like white person name? They're the holy one? Nobody else? Very, very interesting, very strange. But <laughs> this continues and it says... The 1993 panic seemed largely media-driven, although the fact that tourism to Pisco rose sharply once the legend took hold gives a good old-fashioned economic motive for retelling the story for the benefits of visitors. In any event, the 2007 earthquake has ensured that the people of Pisco have more important things to worry about than vampires these days. Still, Sarah Ellen Roberts' story provides a good example of how easily local superstition and media coverage can combine to cause panic. It also shows how a really good story can linger over time. And if that is not the point of this show, (laughs) to talk about these really amazing stories and how they just last literal decades, like a century, people started, I'm I'm assuming they started telling this story around her time of death, because that's when they were like, why is she staying here? Why aren't you taking her? 1913 to 2021. This was posted in, in 2011, but still like, it's been a century that this story has like been told. That's amazing. So I also, of course, I went ahead and I was looking into other sources, I guess you could say. Yeah, other sources. And I have a few pages here that I wanted to go through. And of course, all of these are on the Susto Google Docs on patreon.com slash Susto Podcast. You can sign up and get access to these. So this one is from a website called The Free Dictionary by Farlex. This specific entry, there's different sources at the bottom, but I can't find a name for someone who wrote this. It could have just been that this website put this together itself or maybe it's like a wikipedia but anyway for an entry called vampires in mexico under pop culture it has a breakdown of different like types of cultures uh in mexico and i know mexico and peru are not the same but again we've seen how these stories can travel 
through these different cultures. So I wanted to read this because I was like, I wonder if there's any vampire specifically in my culture. So I'm going to read through this one. There's a lot on this one, so I don't think I'm going to read everything, but it says, Accounts of vampires in Mexico can be traced as far back as the ancient Maya, whose territory centered on what is now Guatemala, but also reached north into the Yucatan Peninsula and the southern part of present-day Mexico. This was the territory of the vampire bats, which were incorporated into the mythology of the Maya. Camasotes, the fierce cave god of the Mayan underworld, was known for his appearance in the Popol Vol and his representations in Mayan art. In the Popol Vol, two brothers entered the underworld to avenge the death of their father. To accomplish their task, they had to pass through a number of obstacles, one of which was the bat house. The... So then it describes their fight with this creature, the Kamasots. So there, uh, there's a description of Kamasots. It says, with his sharp nose and large teeth and claws was a popularly feared figure among the Mayans, and numerous representations appeared in Mayan art. Kamasots served two diverse purposes. He was integral to the basic agriculture myth built around the cycle of growing maize. In his descent, he brought death to the maize grain at the time it was buried in the earth, a necessary step leading to its rebirth in the harvest. He was also a feared, bloodthirsty god of the caves. People avoided places believed to be his dwelling place. So we're going to talk about different peoples. I think there's two of them here. First is the Aztecs. It says, from the elaborate mythology of the Aztecs, whose territory was north of the Maya's land, came several vampire deities. Among those cited as vampiric was the lord of the underworld, the region of the dead. However, he appeared to have been more a devourer of souls of the dead than a vampiric figure. Nevertheless, a set of vampire-like figures was evident in the goddesses related to the Earth Day. And we're going to see a specific name come up here, a familiar name come up here. It says, Tlalteutli, the personification of the rock and soil upon which humans lived. Tlalteutli was also a terror-producing figure. Never pictured as a woman, uh, she was shown as a huge toad with blood covering her jaws. Several of the female figures that surrounded the earth lady shared a common hideousness, as this article says, and thirst for blood. Coatlicue, the serpent skirt, Siwakwat, snake woman, Itzpapalot, obsidian knife butterfly, and the Siwateteo, which we have talked about in the show. These goddesses were also known as the Siwapipitlin, or princesses. It breaks down those three goddesses here, and it says, Coatlicue was described as black, dirty, disheveled, and ugly. Okay, so there was a link like a hyperlink on the word black in their description. I just wanted to like flush that out and see exactly what they meant. The first definition it has here is literally of the color of jet or carbon black, having no hue due to the absorption of all or nearly all incident light. So literally like the color. But then lower here on the list of the definitions is also, as described here, a term used to refer to a variety variety of non-white ethnic groups. But I'll continue. It says, a statue of her survived and has been placed in the National Museum in Mexico City. It has a skirt of snakes and a necklace of hands and hearts with a skull-shaped pendant. The head is missing and in its stead, is a stream of gushing blood that becomes two rattlesnake heads. Okay, so I see the statue and I see what they mean. Yeah. Oh, this is actually a really cool statue, but it just looks like stone. It doesn't have any color to it. So the next one that it has here is Siwakwat was the ancient goddess of Culhuacan, but after the 15th century, her worship was centered in Xochimilco, 
Uh, her appearance was terrifying, stringy hair, her open, her mouth open to receive victims, and two knives gracing her forehead. However, she had the ability to change herself into a beautiful young woman who, like vampire demons in many lands, enticed young men to their doom. Which I think it translates also to just like vampires in general that they can like seduce and hypnotize people. So that could be one of the origins of that. I guess, idea of like a vampire superpower. Continues, they had sexual relations with her only to wither away and die afterwards. Siwakwad survived into this century both as the Virgen of Guadalupe in Roman Catholic lore and as La Llorona. The next one, the Siwateteo, which again is the one that we've talked about. The Siwateteo were the most vampiric of all the Aztec deities. They originated from women who died in childbirth. They had once been mortal, had struggled with the child, and had succeeded in holding it until both died in the struggle. See, so this is pretty on par with what I was able to find for that episode. Although this does, this specific line here is not something that I saw. I saw that it was that they had died in childbirth, like while actually trying to give birth to the child. But here it says, had succeeded in holding it until both died in the struggle. So I'm not sure where that part of the lore is coming in. Uh, continues, thus they attained the status of a warrior. As demonic figures, the Siwateteo very much resembled such other vampiric figures as the Lamiai of ancient Greece, which we talked about, or the Iang Suyar of Malaysia. The Siwateteo wandered the night and attacked children, again on par, leaving them paralyzed or otherwise deceased. Oh, this says diseased, yes, which was what we found for that episode. It says... They held counsel with other Siwateteos at local crossroads. Food offerings were placed at crossroads in structures dedicated to the Siwateteos so that they would gorge themselves and not attack the children. Again, the idea of offerings is something that's consistent with that episode. Also, if the vampiric beings remained at the crossroads until morning, they would be killed by the sunlight. Them being killed by the sunlight is not something I think that we found for that episode. It says, In recent years, the Siwateteos have been described as having white faces and chalk-covered arms and hands. They wear the costume of Tlatzolteotl, the goddess of all sorcery, lust, and evil. Okay, so then this goes on to a different group of people, and this is the Tlahuelpuchi. It says, The Aztecan culture was largely destroyed by the European invasion and the religious conquest of the land by Roman Catholicism. True. Uh, the goddesses continued somewhat, however, transformed in the popular imagination into witches that survived under different names. They were called Bruja or Brujo by the Spanish, and... Tlahuelpuchi, the blood-sucking witch, by the descendants of the Aztecs. Which... I've never seen that before, that the Span the Spaniards called these goddesses, these deities, that they called them witches. And that that that's where this is saying saying that that's where the origin of the word bruja or brujo originates from, which I kind of love that because it's like those of us that practice, like we're we're not just witches, we're 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 descendants of these deities somehow. I think that's a really nice sentiment. Anyway, it continues. The Tlahuelpuchi was a person, most often a woman, believed to possess the power uh, to transform itself into one of several animals. Hmm? Similar to a Letrusa. Okay, it says. And in that form, attack and suck the blood of infants or, on rare occasions, children and adults. The Tlahuelpuchi drew elements from both the ancient Aztec goddesses and the witches of Spain, who had the power to transform themselves into animals and liked to suck the blood of infants. The most common animal into which the witches transformed themselves was a turkey. The animals as varied as fleas, cats, dogs, and buzzards were reported. Such witches lived incognito in their communities, and witches became objects of fear. 
especially among couples with infants. I just want you to realize that like domino effect of now we're talking about Aztec deities and goddesses and the transformation of those deities and goddesses merged with Spanish witches and like this like new breed of mystic entity. I don't. It's just like my mind is just like like, like blown right now <laughs> to see how we got all the way here. And so then again, there's a lot more here. And so then this starts to delve into like witchcraft and bujeria and goddesses and all of that. I'm gonna skip ahead, and it says it starts talking about the cinematic vampire. Today, Mexico's prolific movie industry has become well known, and vampire enthusiasts have made note of the larger number of vampire movies from Mexico, many of them featuring U.S. actors. The Mexican vampire image was. Strongly influenced by the Universal Pictures Spanish language rendition of Dracula in 1931, starring Carlos Viarias and Lupita Tovar. This American made version circulated freely in Mexico in the years prior to World War II and directly influenced the image of the vampire in the emerging urban culture. I'm gonna have to look this up. Dracula 1931. Oh my god, yes, I remember this the 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 image, the cover for this movie. I'm so going to watch this. Hell yeah. Okay. Uh, I just googled Dragula 1931 and you'll be able to find where to watch that. Hopefully I can find it for free. But anyways, this continues. It says the vampire arrived in force in 1957 when German Robles starred as the vampire Count Lavad in three vampire movies, El Vampiro, El Ataud del Vampiro, and a comedy inspired by the earlier movies, El Castillo de los Monstruos. Count Lavad obviously influenced by Bela Lugosi, was pictured as a suave Hungarian nobleman. In the first movie, he was killed with a stake that subsequently was removed to allow him further life in the second. So this is something that I've been wanting to dive into, and I feel like this is a great springboard. This story is Mexico has like a really rich history of its own cinema, and I've always loved the style of Mexican horror movies. And like you you'll see them and they're they're very they have a very specific style and I love the way that they look. And I've just because of how those look, I've always been like, I want to see these movies. So I'm gonna hold myself to it and I'm gonna do my I'm, I'll count it as research and then I'll and I'm gonna start watching some of these movies. I'm gonna start with that Dracula one because that sounds really cool and it looks really cool. This goes on to talk about some more of the history and the kind of like ripple effect that these movies had. Oh my god, I need to, I just saw this word and I need to read the sentence. I'll I'll read this last paragraph of this because it'll tie it up nicely into another episode, I think. It says, a previous episode, it says, the vampire as a theme in Mexican cinema peaked in the 1960s. During the early 1970s, the last of the Santo vampire movies, Santo y Blue Demon, Contra Dracula y el Hombre Lobo, appeared. René Cardona, who had directed Santo y el Terroso del Dracula, continued his work in Santo Contra Cazadores de Cabezas, La Invasión de los Muertos, and the two comedies, Capulina Contra los Vampiros and Cap- Campulina Contra los Monstruos. He was followed by Juan Lopez, who directed Mary, Mary, Bloody Mary, and Alucarda, Sisters of Satan. Few new vampire films appeared through the remainder of the decade. From being a center of the vampire cinema in the 1960s, Mexico seems to have largely abandoned the genre through the 1980s and into the 1990s. See, so there was like a, they did have a boom of those types of films. Though a number of the Mexican masked wrestlers adopted a vampire persona, the vampire theme re-emerged briefly at the end of the 1900s, 1990s, when Mexican movie makers jumped on the Chupacabra bandwagon with movies such as Ataca Chupacabras from 1996 and Chupacabras in 2000. I need to 
I'm gonna, I need to make a list of these and watch these. Oh my God, maybe I should do viewing parties for like the Patreon. I'm gonna organize that. That'll be so fun. I have a few more items here that I did want to go through. So I don't think I'll read through this one. It's just, it's a description of the earthquake in 2007 that Peru was hit by. And it's a description of that. So this is from the New York Times. I'm gonna include it in the SUSU Google Docs, but this is information that's easily located. And it's just about the earthquake, I guess, showing that like, hey, it actually happened. Okay, so this one is from a website called livinginperu.com and in their culture section, uh, Terrifying Legends of Peru number four, Sarah Ellen Vampires of Pisco. Vampires? Vampires? I don't know. Uh, I'm going to change the title of this episode to that, Vampires of Pisco, because that's more accurate. But uh, I'm going to read the legend part of this. So it says, it began in 1913 when, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna put this great music here too. It's like a mini, mini story. It says, it began in 1913 when a merchant ship from Europe docked in Pisco, Peru and delivered a coffin sealed with lead. The coffin was laid to rest in the port's cemetery by an Englishman with a face hardened by days of grief, and the locals began to talk. The story was told in bars, hotels, local shops, and soon spread throughout the town. The woman inside the coffin was a vampire. So then it continues. Uh, <laughs> it says, Sarah Ellen had been an English woman, they said, with long blonde hair and pale white skin. You see, I'm telling you, someone saw that they were pale and white and they were like, vampires. Makes sense. It says, uh, some said she was a witch. Others claimed she was bitten by Dracula himself, that she had lived a double life as a faithful spouse by day and blood-sucking predator by night. Okay, honestly, I kind of live for that. Imagine like a comic. There has to be a comic book character like this, like just like a like a homely wife during the day and she's just like baddie vampire at night. Okay, this continues. The only detail that everyone agreed on was that she had been tried and found guilty of witchcraft in her hometown of Blackburn, England, which again, we figured out that they didn't do that in that year anymore. Okay, I mean, let me go back into the scary, the scary voice. It says, Her execution was carried out on June 9th, 1913. Before they struck the killing blow, Sarah Ellen swore that in 80 years' time, she would return to take her revenge on humanity. They drove a stake through her heart and had sealed her in a coffin lined with lead. After the execution, Sarah Ellen's coffin was left with her husband. He searched far and wide for a place to bury her, sailing all over Europe. However, all had heard of her unholiness and the promise of vengeance, and no country would allow her to be buried on their soil. Sarah's husband had no choice but to journey to the Americas. Argentina turned the coffin away, and so did Chile. One day, as the widowed man was about to give up hope, a sailor recommended him to bring Sarah Ellen to Peru. Everyone knows Peru is the land of witches, the sailor said without the slightest hint of jest. This is how Sarah Ellen's coffin came to the port of Pisco in 1913, the same year she was executed. She was buried in the local cemetery where she remained until 80 years later, in early June of 1993, the state-controlled media of the dictatorship of Alberto Fujimori broadcasted throngs of people gathered in the cemetery of Pisco. They held wooden stakes, garlic cloves, and holy relics massed in front of the grave of Sarah Ellen. They were prepared to fight whatever demon, vampire, or spirit that would return for the promised vengeance. 
That year, a vampirologist had appeared on a talk show program in Peru, claiming that Sarah Ellen was one of the three female vampires in the world. She talked of the legend of her death, her oath of revenge. The people of Ica were in hysterics after the program, especially those of the little port town of Pisco, where Sarah's body lay. Okay, so then here, <laughs> at the end, it says, many were convinced she would arise again and possess a young infant child or a virgin to reclaim human form. They made preparations and remained vigilant over the grave in the days leading up to June 9th. And then pretty much everything else here is what we said and then okay so this goes on to tell the true story it says as you might imagine the story of sarah ellen gave many in england a good laugh when they heard what a hysteria it caused for peru in 1993 i don't like that i don't like these white people laughing at people in peru it says first of all england had long ended the practice of executing witches in 1913 when sarah ellen was allegedly killed so yeah they were doing that then. It says, in fact, the last witch execution in England occurred in 1684. Okay, this also says that historical records disproved most of the legend. It says that... Okay, so here it says, on one of these trips, Sarah Ellen passed away and her husband was forced to carry her in a makeshift coffin to the nearest cemetery, naturally arousing suspicion and possibly rumors among the locals. So that's strange that he had to carry her coffin himself. Like, how did he do that? It says, this is based in research by Stephen Smith, published in the Daily Mail. Smith also believes that the legend is mostly a result of the Peruvian media's hype in that very same year of 1993. Although he does not rule out the possibility that it was an enduring local myth ever since Sarah's coffin arrived under the aforementioned mentioned strange circumstances so it's just like it's just like weird it was just a weird situation and people took it from there people's imaginations took off which again we've seen that happen before and i think that's really interesting that you know people's reactions or whatever or what have you it's just that creates the story itself sometimes Okay, and then there's one last link here. I'm not going to read through this one, but I'm going to put it in the Google Docs. It's it's basically just another re, a different retelling of of the story, and it's a lot shorter. But I'm going to leave it in there for anybody that wants to see it. There's a picture. Uh, this page looks like it's alluding to the idea that this is a picture of her, and there's a picture of what looks like her grave. And I'll be posting those on the social medias when I post this episode. Oh my goodness. Oh, that felt so good. Uh, can you tell how much I missed doing? It was only, it was literally only like what, two, three weeks that I didn't do an episode and I'm like itching for it. I'm like, oh, I just love talking to you all and I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> so yeah, there's not much to tell you all. Just, I'm just again, happy to be what feels like I'm back on track. I'm glad that you all were patient. Thank you so much. If I can ask you for a huge favor, it would be to rate and review the show wherever you are listening to it. Make sure that you are subscribed. If you can like the show, like the episodes, bump me up on those algorithms. I really want your help getting to a consistent 200 listeners per episode. We're almost there. Also make sure you follow all the social medias at Susta Podcast, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for any and all updates on the show. Just uh, to let you all know as well, I, I'm I'm still available to make Susto hoodies, shirts, and face masks. So if you want one, send me a DM, let me know. You can send me an email, sustopodcast at gmail.com. And you can also send me a message or an email to send in your own scary stories, your own videos, pictures, recordings, what have you. I cannot tell you how many TikToks that I've seen where I'm just like, oh my God. You know what I'm going to do? Because the Discord 
So when you sign up to be a patron, the top tier, you have access to the Discord. And that basically gives you 24 access, 24 hour access to like chat with me. I have the app on my phone. So any updates that I get from people that have access to the Susto Discord, I get it straight to my phone, but it's not very active on there. So if you're a patron, you have access to there, please feel free to use it. But what I think I'm going to do is because I was going to say I see so many of these like paranormal TikToks and I'd send them to my friends, but usually my friends are like, why are you sending me this scary shit right before we're going to bed or when it's already dark out? So <laughs> what I'm going to do now is I'm going to put, put them all in the Discord. I'll just copy the links and share those TikToks with you. But yeah, just so that I can get the the Discord kind of like drumming and, and going up. And yeah. Yeah. Also, one last thing, you can also check out my my own Etsy that is separate from Susto. There's a few things on there. The Evil Eye sticker is actually on there too. I'm like making stickers and stuff and putting them up there. There's a few items and I'm just going to be putting more as the ideas come and as I have time to design and produce them. So yeah, thank you all so much for listening and I will talk to you later. Go buy some garlic, okay? Bye. <laughs>